This podcast is brought to you by the book, The Memoir Project, a thoroughly non-standardized text for writing in life, published by Grand Central Publishing. Recently updated and reissued in a new edition, it will teach you everything you need to know to write memoir. For more information, see the show notes or purchase wherever books are sold. Welcome to QWERTY. I'm Marion Roach-Smith. Each episode, I talk to writers from all genres to discover what makes a good read. And along the way, we discuss their writing process, discover their tips, and talk about what matters most to writers. So step away from the computer or typewriter for a bit and join us. My guest today is Anthony Darius. He's the author of The Language of Men, a memoir which received the Penn New England Discovery Prize and Forward's Memoir of the Year Award when it was published in 2012. His essays have appeared in Boston Magazine, Solstice, The Good Men Project, Shelf Awareness, The Literary Review, and more. He's a teacher, teaching writing workshops for homeless veterans, and he currently directs the Low Residency MFA in Creative and Professional Writing at Western Connecticut State University. Hi, Anthony. How are you? I'm good, Marion. Thanks for having me here. It's delightful to have you and to be able to talk to you again. When your memoir came out, The Language of Men, it attracted my attention. Um, I remember even writing about it on my memoir project blog, and I did so in no small part because I was fascinated by the door you took into your family, this idea of language. And family is such rich territory that most writers just don't know how to choose the portal to this array of topics. So how did that theme, the idea of language, come up for you and percolate up as the way to get into this tale? Yeah, I think, you know, um, I was always fascinated with my father's voice, just, you know, the the slang that he would use. And, you know, he was a he would he knew all these different kinds of like movie quotes and classic rock lyrics. And I felt like the him and the men in my family often had our own way of communicating that a lot of, um, I think my mother especially felt kind of left out of. So, you know, when, early on when I was writing, I was, a lot of my characters just sounded like my father. And then I think, you know, as I started to spend more time writing memoir, I wanted to understand where that language came from and sort of what his influences were. So I think that's where that idea of communication and language and how that really started to, to form the foundation of the book. Yeah, his language sets him off and makes him an object of great interest, first of all, to you and your family and and then to us as the readers. But it's a tricky topic, isn't it? Since language reveals our biases, our prejudices, the time in the life, you know, where in the world, when in the world we're living, it characterizes us. So how did you navigate that place of fearing merely exposing him um, with wanting us to understand him? That seems like a really tricky spot for me. Yeah, you know, and there and there were moments where, you know, I wanted to be sensitive to his background and experiences and also not to present him in a way that seems like um, you know, the reader and I are laughing at him or or, you know, right. uh, turning him into some kind of clown. And I think, you know, there's it's a fine line sometimes because um I really wanted to kind of capture him in an unfiltered way, but as you're saying inherent in that is um, we don't always want to be <laughs> shown or heard uh, in an unfiltered way. I think what I tried to do as best I could was, you know, bring it back to why was I revealing these things 
at this particular time? You know, why why were these conversations important, and how did they ultimately connect back to me? You know, I think for a while I thought the book was about my father, but I think as I, I as I moved along and kind of understood memoir better, I, I sort of embraced the fact that it was about me, and if I was revealing something about somebody else, it had to be uh, ultimately coming back to something I was trying to say about myself. And, you know, I, I really tried to approach a lot of these scenes from a place of honesty and curiosity. Um, and I think if that's how you're approaching memoir, you know, in, in an honest and, and curious way, rather than in a vindictive or, or uh, you know, out of spite. Um, revenge, right. Yeah, right, or revenge, revenge exactly. Genre. Yeah, I mean, I think that's only going to, cause problems for you. But I, I feel like it's, it's, it's hard to argue with someone who's honestly curious about someone they love and, and trying to figure out how that person influenced them and, and kind of shaped who they've become or, or I've become. Yeah, I was just gonna say, I would, I would argue that the book isn't about you or him. It really has this strong argument about the language of men, and especially mm. in the way your mother felt so left out. I mean, most women will tell you that we can't use your language, but <laughs> and we don't use your language. I had this conversation with my husband the other day. He was talking about a meeting he was in, and somebody said, well, we'll just split the baby. And I said to him, there wasn't a woman in that room, was there? And he looked at me. <laughs> As if to say, how did you know? And I said, because no mm. woman, first of all, would ever use that expression. And second of all, no woman would put up with that expression. We we don't care if there's that biblical reference to it. We're not splitting any baby and we're not even doing it in, in purely <laughs> right. language. So yep. you, I think the character in the book that's so interesting is the language of men and how extensively you 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 show us the solitudinous response that your mother has to it and the bonding you guys have to it, but also the way it also keeps you all separate. It's fascinating. So you interviewed your book, yeah. you interviewed your father extensively for this book. Let's get to that because that's how you got this language on the page. And my students very rarely believe me when I say, I interview people for memoir. They don't think they're going to have to, or they don't know how, or they're afraid or whatever. For my first book, which chronicles my mother's decline into Alzheimer's disease, I interviewed her friends. And in doing so, hmm. I found out, for instance, that, that my mother, who got sick at 49 and I couldn't interview her, um, I found out that she, when she was a, a girl, she, her mother would make her prom dresses for her. And my mother loved her mother very much, but her mother always sewed these rosettes onto the collar of the prom dresses. And my mother used to carry a pair of cuticle scissors and a needle and thread in her in her evening bag, she'd cut off the rosettes to the prom on the way to the prom. She'd sew them back on before she got home. These are the kinds of details that allow us to see the relationships, right? So there's mm. this tr this wonderful thing we get when we interview people, but it's hard to do. So let's talk about interviewing your dad. Did you ask him? Did he think about it? I mean, how did that? How, what was that opening foray into this? experience. Yeah. You know, I mean, for me, I think a, a big part of it was he had had a stroke not too long before I, I really started interviewing him and he almost lost his ability to talk. So there was this urgency on my part, like I need to get a tape recorder. I need to sit down with him and, and get his voice on tape. Um, and he was very open to doing it. You know, I think he was, um, 
you know, we always kind of had these assumptions about his time in, in the Vietnam War, but no one had actually sat him down and, and talked to him about it. So we had, you know, I was home for uh, a week once and uh, every day I just sat him down and we were talking for two or three hours at a time. And he was um, very open to it, you know, and I think he got excited about it too. <laughs> you know, I think he felt um, you know, kind of honored and flattered to uh, to have somebody ask him about these experiences that he never really talked about. Um, so I was, I was surprised uh, because in, in a lot of other ways, he's not that vocal, you know, like he's, um, he can tell stories and tell jokes and stuff, but sometimes when you, when you sit down for a, in an intense conversation, um, there isn't much back and forth, but for, for this, there was. Um, so I think initially he was, um, he was open to it. I think as the book started to move along and actually become a real thing, you know, things changed a little bit. <laughs> and mm-hmm. um, oh yeah, I think you know just the reality <laughs> of like, okay, this is going to go somewhere beyond you know, you know, uh, our living room and a tape recorder. The family, I think that, that, our, right? yeah, that started to change things a little bit. But um, did he get frightened? Did he get defensive? What happened? What do you mean changed? Yeah, you know, I think. Yeah, I think there was a little bit of fear. I think there was a little bit of um, wondering why it needed to be in a book and not just something that him and I could do. Like, why did it have to go beyond just a conversation that we had? Um, Which I think is something Mm -hmm. a lot of memoirists will ask themselves, and it's something I definitely ask myself. Um, But I think it's... You know, it's partly tied to, you know, I didn't really grow up in much of a a literary family. You know, there wasn't, we weren't really, there weren't books around. We weren't really talking about reading or writing that much. It was more movies and music, which were my, my earlier influences. So I think, um, I think for me having, you know, spent a lot of time with writers and in a writing community and just understanding that part of what you're doing is bringing this story to a wider audience because you want that interaction with a, a wider audience or, you know, mm-hmm. um, a larger group of readers and the conversations that happen, you know, when the book came out and I would read from it, the book, the conversations that would happen because of the book being out there, either with my family coming to events or, you know, just strangers who have just, you know, read the book for the first time. I think that started to, help my father understand kind of what the book or just what any book can do really once it, you know, is in the hands of somebody else and it's, you know, part of a larger conversation. So you talked earlier about assumptions. You had some assumptions about the Vietnam War. We have lots of assumptions about the Vietnam War and and, and so mm. many people who fought in it were pretty much told, you know, don't wear your uniform home on the plane. Don't talk about it. And so as I've and when I interview people, I find the single greatest problem for me is my own intent. I, the things I want them to say, uh, f- frequently as a journalist, I used to find that I, I had an assumption about the story that it was about X. And so I just want people to say stuff that contributes to my argument, right? Big mistake <laughs> in an interview. Yeah. Because it can go in any direction and you've got to develop the agility to let it. But 
interviewing family members in particular, when you've got that pathology of emotion behind that and you want him to fess up about that awful day or you want him to come clean about his drinking or you want, I'm not talking about your dad, but I'm talking about other people. Right. And it doesn't yeah. happen, but suddenly these assumptions get hit with a hammer. How, do you, how did you feel as the receiving end of those new directions of his own download of his conscious and subconscious mind. I mean, what happened to you as he was talking? Yeah, I th you know, I think it made me realize um, how complex some of the things I was asking really were and, you know, how there were moments where, you know, he might give a short answer to something, um, uh, you know, in kind of like a that kind of like classic stoic way of like, that's just the way it was, or, you know, you know, it was just one of those things, something like that. So there were times where those kind of, those euphemisms were, ended up being these kind of red flags for me about, okay, there's, there's more going on there. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> there's more going on yeah, there. I bet. Either he, do, he doesn't have the language for it, or even I don't uh. have the language for it at the moment, because I'm not even sure, like how complex of these, like, masculinity issues and less like the economic impact of war and how that, you know, all of these different things that I wasn't planning on really writing about or thinking about. And then uh, because of my assumptions, you know, growing up, you know, on Hollywood's version of the Vietnam War, you know, I did kind of expect that there would be these stories of, of combat or, you know, the more kind of like mm -hmm. heroic war stories. And that wasn't my dad's experience. You know, he was, well, there were a lot of stories of him being this, you know, bored, confused 19-year-old kid who didn't really understand why he was there. And so he was kind of living out his, um, you know, instead of going to college, he was in Vietnam. So a lot of the things he was doing was kind of similar to what I was doing uh, when I was 19, just, you know, drinking and, you know, being <laughs> yeah. destructive in, in other ways, but it was in this kind of like alternate universe yeah. of, of the Vietnam War for him. And I just remember like these pictures of his, um, you know, where he was staying in his bunk in Vietnam and it was all decorated like I would decorate my dorm room, you know, <laughs> and it was kind of like, oh wow, there's this, this whole sort of other experience that, you know, that feels so different to mine. And it obviously was in so many ways, but there were still just a lot of these like young man trying to figure out himself kind of things that are, I think are universal. So it was, it were those moments of connection that I think helped me get through those, you know, those, uh, those weedier parts of, of the conversation that were a little That's more lovely. complex and, and took more to figure out. I love that idea of the euphemisms as red flags. I suspect after you start hearing a couple of them, you start, I, for me, I start circling things in my notebook. I, I When I interview people, I use a notebook and I, I may or may not use a tape recorder, but I always have a notebook in my lap and then I'll maybe making notes about things that I want to go back and make sure we, you know, hit harder. Mm -hmm. But if you've got these euphemistic sort of manhole covers that he's throwing out <laughs> and you know there's a lot below it, um, did you make a list of them? Did you just start to recognize them for what they were and then think about it and go back and get them? Did you go back and get them right there on the spot? This is the kind of thing that I think, especially when it's your parent, if you start recognizing someone's throwing up red flags via their euphemisms, what do you do? Do you call them on it? Do you not call them on it? It's your parent after all. So we're talking about like a Freudian yeah. nightmare right now. So exactly. what'd you do? Exactly. 
You know, it was funny because a lot of these <laughs> phrases were things that I would hear all the time growing up. Like, you know, that's just the way it was or it is what it is, mm-hmm. is was a one that was always, you know, just something my father would kind of lean on. Um, right. And so I think when I started to to pay attention to those and think about when he was saying them, you know, it was often because it was things that didn't have kind of a, a clear cut answer and there was no, um, you know, it was, it was kind of these, these gray areas of, um, that mm-hmm. I think ended up, you know, when I, when, I don't know, when, when, when those started to become more, um, more apparent to me, I think that's when I would start to do more kind of outside research. So, you know, if, if that was his experience about something, then what are, what were some of the other factors that were kind of contributing to that or, or leading up to, to that? Um, and I think it's, right. you know, I didn't have a list going, but it definitely was those moments where like, okay, I could either press him a little bit harder. And if that doesn't work, then, you know, why is this, why does this seem to be a sensitive thing? And, and is it because, you know, there's shame involved? Is it because there's um, just time and memory and all of these things that I think memoirists deal with? But um, yeah, you know, and, and then I started to realize that my father wasn't the only one doing that. I think we all do it, you know, a, a lot of the time, especially oh, yes. in, in uh-huh. you know, in casual conversation. So I started to pay attention to when I would do that, or it's kind of like when I, you know, work with, students and, you know, you see certain cliches pop up. Um, and oftentimes those cliches are, like you said, are this kind of like manhole cover for, you know, something that's going on deeper there that either we're not aware of, or the writer is still figuring out or the writer is protecting. Um, so yeah, there is kind of this interesting thing of like during an interview, figuring out where those kind of trap doors are, but then also as you're writing, you know, when am I using those euphemisms or cliches that are, you know, I'm trying to bridge these two things and I don't know how to get there yet. So it's often sure in re- in rewriting and revision where I start to, you know, pick apart my own language that I lean on or I'm using as kind of a shortcut. Well, I always say to people that writing memoir is the single greatest portal to self-discovery. But what you're telling us here is that writing this piece starting with the interviewing, well, starting with the very conception of it, which fascinates me, this idea that language, the language of men is what it is, this really bonded you more definitively to your dad. I mean, how else could you have ever shared anything about the Vietnam War and the, specifically the idea that his, his bunk looked like your college room in it, theoretically, at least, you know, that there's a, that you found similarity there. It's really quite poignant and very, very wonderful. And you write in your, and you wrote in a piece I read of yours, um, you wrote about ourselves and about writing about ourselves and family. And you said that there came a point when you had to consider yourself and the people in your book as characters. And that fascinated me. It's Mm -hmm. advice I give to people when they're writing from trauma, sex abuse, from neglect, that I'm not asking them ever to go back and re-experience or relive the trauma, what I'm asking them to do is quite different from that. It's, it's really get that distance, that discernment out and use it so they can have a look this time. But talk to us about that idea of turning yourself and others into characters. 
Yeah, you know, I I think it helped a lot to think of it that way because, um, you know, just as when you're creating characters in fiction, like you want to create these complex, often contradictory characters that um, are real and, and honest. So I think when you're doing that in memoir, um, you know, I, I would just think about my own motivations as a character. You know, why why am I telling this story? Why do I want to include these details um, or these characteristics? And the same thing when I was writing other characters who were, you know, my family um, was kind of, am I am I presenting them in a way that feels fully developed for the reader? And I'm I'm not, you know, just going on what my assumptions are about these people and. Um, how am I bringing the reader into this intimate relationship that I have with these people, but also, I don't know, kind of giving my family members some space to be people and not just family members, you know? Um, (laughs) And so that's... Yes. Yeah, right. You know, and I think that was a big part of the entire experience too, is I think for a lot of memoirists who are writing coming of age stories, a big part of it is accepting that you know, the people in your family are, are, are first people and they had these whole lives before you were there. Um, so I think trying Mm -hmm. to, trying to honor that while also presenting myself as this kind of curious, slightly impressionable young kid, I think kind of filtering it through that helped me, you know, not present them in a way that felt, um, yeah, hurtful or, or attacking in any way, um, but as you know, mm-hmm. as realistic and and um, and complex as I could. Um, so I, I wanted to make sure mm-hmm. that I was including showing, yourself, right? Right, including exactly looking yeah, at yourself and, that way. Mm-hmm. Yep, and that, that was interesting hard too. To, you know, that's a hard assignment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the biggest um, kind of eye-opening reactions I had about the book was, you know, my parents weren't really concerned so much about what was being said about them, but they were concerned about how much I was revealing about myself, which was really fascinating oh to me. And it's, I think as a writer, um, you know, I didn't really care about myself that much. I was kind of like, well, of course I'm going to reveal things about myself. That's what I signed on for. I know what I'm revealing about myself. So there's no real like element of surprise there. But I think to hear a parent show that concern about their kid who's a writer, I think was was really fascinating to me. So there has been... Many moments that like that where you're surprised by the way people are responding to the book. And, you know, I, I sometimes have students who are working on memoirs talk about people might be offended or something like that. But we often overlook those moments mm-hmm. of, you know, people being really honored to be in the book or, you know, it opening up these conversations that you didn't expect. And even if you have to go through that rough patch of, of people being, um, you know, kind of a little scared about what you might be revealing about them. I think oftentimes, especially with family, you know, you you move beyond that and you get to this place where you're having conversations that you wouldn't have had before. It's lovely. I, I also read in that piece that you wrote, you, you have this great quote and you say, I had to realize that it wasn't my job as a memoirist to pause my life. Even though the book ends, life continues. And I... 
I thought, <laughs> what a wonderful thing to understand that memoir goes from here to there. It just goes from here when you didn't know something to there when you did, or from mm -hmm. here when you have to change something to there when you did. And so you seem to inherently understood that you sort of punch into to your timeline of your life and you get this thing. You got this sort of accumulated, accumulated knowledge of what the language of men does in a family. The havoc it wreaks, the bonding it brings, and the, the confusion th that can result somewhere between the two. And so when life continued after you wrote this book, I, I would love to know a little bit about how you felt at the end of the experience. Are you still sort of taking notes in your head when you go home for Thanksgiving dinner? <laughs> or have you been able to sort of shed the role that must have been pretty consuming in order to pr produce this book? Yeah, it was consuming for a long time. And I think I've I've moved on to, I've been working mostly on fiction right now. I just finished a novel and I think I wouldn't have been able to do that if I hadn't spent so much time writing memoir. Like, I think there was a lot of, I've talked to other memoirists about this too, who have moved from memoir to fiction. And I think there was a lot of just like kind of things I needed to figure out about myself. I needed to kind of get a better grasp on why I think the way I think and how I've come to think the way I think and just do some of that kind of self-analysis before moving on to creating a character from scratch. Um, so yeah, it was, a, it, it, it's still a weird process too, because I've, you know, I've, when the book came out and, you know, I'm at that point, I've been done with it for, you know, almost, you know, six months or so. So I already feel this distance from it, but then everybody reading it, it's so fresh in their minds. So in some ways they're kind of closer to the material than I am. And so we would get into these Q and A's at, at events and stuff and they'd be bringing up parts of the book that I'm like, oh yeah, I, I kind of forgot that was in there. <laughs> so I'd have to like, you know, re, reconnect with the book life. in some way. Yeah. Right, exactly. Right. And um, yeah, I think for a while there was this kind of, you know, <laughs> feeling in my family of like, we better not say too much around him because he might like copy it all down and then yeah. do something with it. Um, right. But right. I don't feel that anyway. You know, I, I don't kind of feel, I don't feel like a spy in my own family anymore. You know, I, I, I kind of felt that way for a little <laughs> bit. Um, but That's I kind of what liked, I was getting at. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I kind of liked that role for a little while because I think growing up, I, that's kind of what I was doing anyway growing up. I was very, I was a pretty shy kid. I was always listening. I, I had like a tape recorder when I was little and I was always recording conversations and, you know, having my own radio shows and stuff like that. So I think they kind of tapped into like a, just that idea of listening and, and you know, kind of uh, being an observer to other people's stories. Um, so there was some enjoyment in that, but I, I think after a while, like we kind of just all moved on and like, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the book every once in a while, but it's not, it's not like a sore subject. It's not, you know, as raw as it used to be. Um, but it, you know, um, thing, it depends, you know, sometimes uh, one of my, one of the first things my dad asked me about the novel that I was working on is if, if whether or not he was a character in it. And I was like, no, no, you're like, you're safe. <laughs> you're not in this one. Like I didn't, you know. 
But it's funny in that way, too, because, you know, if you write a memoir, people are worried about how you're portraying them as real people. If you write a novel, people will assume that, you know, you're writing some fictionalized version of them. them. So you can never kind of escape that. Is this based on your real life kind of thing? But, um, you know, it's it's uh, it's been a lot of, you know, a lot of moments of feeling really close to my family about it. A lot of times feeling kind of this is me you know, doing my own thing. But I think, you know, part of it was kind of, um, you know, figuring out my own independence too. So that, that was a part of the book as well. So I think that it kind of made sense that that's how it felt, you know, publishing it and, and what things were like after. Of course. Well, I could talk to you all day about this, but I think you've really helped a lot of the memoirists out there who are thinking about how they're going to intersect, interact, and escape at the end of the experience from that <laughs> feeling like a spy in the house of love. So thank you, Anthony. I so appreciate you coming along today to talk to us. And that is uh, Anthony Derry's. His book is The Language of Men, a memoir. Pick it up wherever books are sold. I'm Marion Roach-Smith, and you've been listening to QWERTY. Subscribe wherever podcasts are available. QWERTY is produced by Overit Studios in Albany, New York. Reach them at overitstudios.com. Our producer is Adam Claremont. Our assistant is Lorna Bailey. Want more on the art and work of writing? Visit marionroach.com and take a class with me. And thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to QWERTY and listen to it wherever you go. 